these very few companies that control the ingredients to make these kinds of large-scale AI technologies will also control the future. And it's up to all of us to try and imagine what could go wrong. I'm Misha Da Vinci. This is The Grift Podcast, conversations to get you ready for the future. Ever since OpenAI released ChatGPT in November of 2022, artificial intelligence has dominated our consciousness and conversations. But few of us understand what's happening behind the scenes or the forces that are really at play. My guest today is going to change that. Amber Kak is a globally recognized technology policy expert with over a decade of transnational experience in roles across government, academia, and the nonprofit sector. Amber is currently the executive director at AI Now, a research institute based in New York that produces diagnoses and actionable recommendations for regulating AI. She previously served as a senior advisor on AI at the Federal Trade Commission, where she advised the US regulatory agency on emerging technologies. Prior to AI Now, Amber was a global policy advisor at Mozilla, where she steered Mozilla's policy positions and supported a multi-pronged campaign for strong data protection law in India and Kenya. Amber currently serves on the board of directors for the Signal Foundation and the AI Committee for the board of directors for the Mozilla Foundation, and is a visiting research scientist at the Northeastern University Cybersecurity and Privacy Institute. Amber has published widely across academic journals and popular outlets, and her work has been featured in Nature, MIT Tech Review, and Wired, among others. Trained as a lawyer, Amber received her BALLB from the National University of Juridical Sciences in India. She has a Master's in Law and an MSc in the Social Science of the Internet from the University of Oxford, which she attended as a Rhodes Scholar. This is one of my favorite conversations. We cover Amber's journey from India to the UK and then to the US, we delve into her work for net neutrality, her career as a tech policy advisor, and we explore her current role at AI Now, where she's focused on ensuring that AI works for humanity at large are not just a small group of people. Let's dive in. Let's learn what's really happening with AI and get ready for the future. Amber, thanks for coming on. That's pretty incredible. Thank you, Risha. So happy to be here. When I, when I learned about you and first read your bio, I thought, oh my gosh, I love her. You are so global. You have, you have a vast understanding of so much. I mean, just, I mean, let's face it, you go from India to the UK as a Rhodes Scholar and then to the US where you end up advising the government. That is a pretty amazing path. So, yeah. It's, it's not a, I would say it's not a conventional or a usual path. And it's, I get a lot of, you know, law students in, in India from other places being like, could you explain how we, <laughs> it's, it's not all, you know, it's not a, it's not a template basically. Well, usually you find, I mean, occasionally people are tri-continental, like they really move and then move. That's pretty amazing. Um, and I mean, this is really exceptional because usually people would move from one to, they move from one big move and then that's it. But you move from the India to the UK and then to the US and then you end up doing like the highest level thing, which is advising the government. Like that means you have, you've, it's the highest echelon in a sense because you're the most kind of trusted person to be advising the government on policy. That's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I think what it speaks to more than anything is that this particular kind of technology sector, but in particular AI and related data-driven you know, emerging technologies, they're so kind of opaque and inscrutable to most people. 
that the that the demand for kind of specialized understanding of these systems and the kind of legal regimes that could possibly be used to discipline them mm. is also kind of a rare resource. So if anything, I think, uh, you know, if my if my path seems unusual, I think in, in part, at least it is because, um, you know, well, now there's a lot more people interested in this. Yeah. But I think, you know, I, I started doing this work uh, more than 10 years ago and it was fairly niche. Yeah. And I think having people that have sort of like seen the hype cycles and seen how AI connects with previous previous kind of waves of technologies or uh, other kinds of technologies is is kind of quite useful and um, uh, you know and and it it doesn't really matter where you got that understanding or where you were the jurisdictional kind of um, emphasis starts uh, becoming less and less important. That's so true because these technologies are global right okay before we dive into all that really incredible stuff that we're going to talk about how did it all start like when you were a little girl what were you going to be when you grew up? Like, what was your vision for your for your life? Oh my goodness! I don't know if I can. Uh, the the I I probably didn't want to do anything resembling sitting at a computer for so many hours of a day. I'm I'm fairly sure, but um, I think like going to law school was a big kind of decision for me. And I remember that you know, as as one is and should be at that age, I was quite idealistic about. Uh, the use of kind of using the law as kind of a lever for for public interest change. I come from a family. My my father is a um, kind of a well known well known kind of activist and filmmaker in India. And so I definitely I feel like I was primed to a career in what is broadly termed as kind of public interest work. Mm-hmm. Um, but technology as a as a kind of neat kind of you know. Uh, like where did I find myself there mm-hmm. was because I I don't think I, my, you know my family has nothing to do with that. Um, it actually goes back to when I was in law school. I remember I wasn't really too jazzed with most of the courses that I was having, you know, being exposed to. It was like contract law and tort law and just like century old black letter uh, law that we were being taught. And in that kind of maze of of, of um, legal doctrine, there was one course that I did. It was offered by, um, you know, uh, a, a younger professor who she had a course on, I think it was called like communication governance or something. And it was about how do we regulate the Internet? And I remember thinking that this is so exciting because the it's not really about the law. There isn't a lot of law. This was uh, 2000 and, and I think it was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, like, the the questions of 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 law aside, the even the kind of normative questions of what is the world we want, what is the kind of techno- technological future we want, those seemed entirely unresolved. And so I was like, this is so much more interesting because it like it hasn't all been set in stone. Exactly. If anything, we're at the start of something. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's why I was sort of drawn to it and continue to be drawn to this this field. Um, yeah. yeah, you you wanted to be part of shaping something rather than just a part of like executing something that was already designed yeah actually that's that's a really good way to put it because that's also how I describe when people ask me what policy work is because it's still a kind of term of art and and, you know I have family members who are like what is that (laughs) exactly and the way I the way I describe it is like this is this what I do is not about what the law is it's what the law should be and what society should be and so it is it is both in flux and and that doesn't mean that it's you know we're always necessarily fighting for you know, what is good, right. you can do policy in a company and you can do policy for any number of interests, yeah. but you're still pushing in a direction and away from status quo in one way or the other, which I um, like that. I think it's away from it's, status it's quo. We, we like that because if there is to be progress, 
you must be moving away from the status quo. You must be moving towards something. And hopefully that is something that's uplifting and empowering and allowing the way I see it, human potential and human creativity to flourish. So how did you get to Oxford? And what did you study exactly? Yeah, so Oxford, honestly, uh, is I, I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship and it was a pretty... That's you know, a big deal. Um, it's a prestigious mm-hmm. uh, scholarship, of course, but I think the the part that um, maybe the the less glam or the the least glamorous mm-hmm. part of it is that it off it uh, funds your your postgraduate education yeah. at the University of Oxford and nowhere else. And so, yeah, obviously it's a no brainer. I got the fellowship, and I was sort of like, okay, what do now I can think about what do I want to study? Which is sort of the a, a unique position to be in because usually you want to study and then you go look for scholarships yeah, yeah, yeah. to fund that yeah. study. It happened um, somewhat the other way around. They sort of like fund you as a as a scholar and then you kind of figure out what where, where you want to go with it. So um, I had an interesting Oxford experience. I spent, um, I did two courses. One was in one of the oldest and most traditional departments, which is obviously the law faculty where I did my master's. And the other was in the Oxford Internet Institute, which was the exact opposite. It didn't even have a proper building yet. They wow. were, or that building has now since changed. Um very much kind of on the margins of what was considered the tradition of Oxford. Mm-hmm. And so it was my my experience was, you know, really like 180 mm-hmm. degrees. And both, I think, in many ways, um, like have shaped the that that disciplinary grounding has been both on uh, has been created on kind of both fronts, yeah. both the traditional, like, how do you if anything, actually, on the law faculty, what I learned was that there are very kind of traditional and entrenched ways of understanding what a good argument is and how to be persuasive. And maybe you want to use different, you know, maybe you want to do it differently, but it's at least important to understand how that, you know, how that kind of power structure exists mm-hmm. and how there's like this way of this is what a good argument yeah. looks like. And this is how you make an argument to people in power. And I think that has... um Held me in kind of good stead, particularly in the kind of policy work I do. What you're doing. So formative experiences for you in, in sort of shaping this, the trajectory now of your, of your work and, and the kinds of things you have an, a deeper understanding in and what t- sort of value you can bring to the rest of us. I mean, this is kind of, I find to be very exciting and very unique to be able to talk to someone with that sort of training and background and, and experience. I'm glad that you, I, I usually feel like it's a sort of hodgepodge of like a, a lot of different disciplinary hats oh, and jurors, you know, it, it comes together. On this pod, on this podcast, like one of the things that's been, been sort of like a thread running through all of my conversations is this interdisciplinariness of the people who like I want to talk to because I find that they bring, you know, exponential value in whatever they do because they can see from it see it from many sides and then all of a sudden their value as a as a, as a being as a human in that space is way more and so the interdisciplinary my dear and you're like right at the tippy top love it now okay so oxford how'd you get to america and tell us about leading up to ai ai now what's what's what happened there yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of stuff. I think we, uh, I, 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 I always, I'm, I'm so used to talking the royal we now, but um, I have, um, you know, a bunch of experiences that 
like I said, sort of started in law school. So I'd done the Google Policy Fellowship. This is pre-Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very, very sure that, that you know, I wanted to, to, to kind of specialize in tech policy. Um, and when I went to Oxford, even though I was you kind know, of doing my, my law degree and kind of going through that, that process, um, I, w- I was very much kind of continuing to uh, attend uh, conferences on internet policy. They weren't always policy conferences. Sometimes they were more kind of like we just discussed interdisciplinary venues. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had my tentacles in this world, even as I was kind of so-called getting my completing my education. Mm-hmm. And the Internet Institute was, you know, absolutely prime for that. It's, it's sort of set up for um, building a career in that field. And so right after that, I actually did a, um, you know, something that I, I don't always uh, uh, have a chance to talk about, but I actually ended up going back to India and working directly with the telecom regulator on net neutrality regulation. Ooh. And it was interesting. I the, the reason I did that was because my Oxford Internet Institute ma- master's thesis was totally unrelated to law. It was about how do first time users of the Internet um understand what the internet is and specifically how are they responding to have you heard of facebook free basics um or what is the other like uh, zero rating no no okay this free basics was it still exists in many countries but it's basically like it's internet for free but internet is in because it's not actually the whole internet it's a curation of facebook plus like you know, uh, certain other websites that are essentially like whitelisted or certain other applications that are whitelisted. And you can either use them unlimited or depending on the plan, you can use them to a certain, you know, um, limit. But the idea is essentially you get a kind of free pass. And the idea was, or Facebook's marketing around this was we're going to get the whole, you know, world World. of the digital divide. Close it. We're going to get everybody online. But there was this very kind of damning research that kind of suggested that people in Myanmar were coming online and thinking Facebook was the Internet and this was a disaster. So they were like, shut it down. And on the other hand, people were like, this is the best thing in the world there. It's charity and it's amazing. And so wow. um, yeah. my research kind of, again, I started this before it became a whole policy fight, mm-hmm. and but it ended right when the policy fight exploded. And so my research was essentially just asking people and trying to get a sense speaking to telecom operators in India, speaking to first-time internet users mm-hmm. of like whether this was really true. And the answer to the question of like, you know, were, did they think Facebook was the internet was actually no first-time internet users in India, the the kind of poorer urban com- consumers, all they knew about the internet is this is where you can watch porn or get entertainment for free. Because, I mean, that's what people had heard about it. And so... They were like, sure, we'll use this free thing. But in the time being, we're going to actually try really hard to spend that extra 10 bucks or whatever is pretty cheap in India, uh, the Internet still, to get access to the whole web. So anyway, this whole long, long story to say it was such an interesting moment because I finished this research and I used it as an opportunity to say both sides of this policy debate are actually quite polarized. On the one hand, yeah. it's kind of patronizing to assume that all, all consumers like are, are going to be brainwashed. Yeah. And on the other hand, what what value are we actually bringing with these plans? Yeah. So and and worked on net neutrality and, and this was considered a kind of net neutral net neutrality violation um, by a lot of people. And so as part of the Indian regulator, we, uh, you know, the Indian regulator ended the year that I worked with them with um, the most aggressive net neutrality rules in the world. So 
Uh, and I think that's still true. Um, so it was a really, I think, a really interesting time to go back yeah. to India, be it with the telecom regulator and be at the helm of um, really coming down on an issue where, uh, which I mean, you know, the UK and the US, they all had net, neutral net neutrality rules, but the the India was kind of coming to it from a unique perspective yeah. because of Facebook basics. Yeah. And um, I had a kind of the best kind of flavor of where research can really plug into the policy. And also I came to it not with legal research, but with research that was actually like an understanding of, of how people interact what was actually happening technology. absolutely that is, it's a rare opportunity to get that and i was as that is it. so and the indian regulator um and then i i found my way to mozilla is the short story and then and then yeah now what a story though i mean that is a that in and of itself is a powerful story to tell because it's you were led to this point where you were right on the front lines and helming and leading up something you know india's number one largest population in the world the largest democracy in the world. And I mean, the future of many things is going to be determined by India. And you were there at that point, making sure that India had net neutrality. That is a big, 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 big deal. I mean, I want to hear TED Talk just about that from you. Because <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's, it's true. And I think, uh, you know, it's times have changed since then. I think the Indian policy landscape and political landscape is, is very different now. Yeah. But there was almost like a blip in time yes. when there you know, like an, an expert. And I want to say this because it, it keeps coming up and people always ask me, how is working at the FTC different from working with the Indian government? Right. Um, like it's, it's a tough question because in many ways, bureaucracies function quite it's similarly. Similar. Mm -hmm. I think is unique or different in both in both these experiences in a good way was that someone like me that is a, um, you know, a, a, a younger female expert was taken seriously because of the value that I brought. And it was because of the subject matter. I think otherwise in the U.S. it's a different story. But in India, for sure, yeah. there you know, that is the policy environment is not yeah. um, adaptable yeah. to that kind of thing, particularly to, to acknowledging your expertise. And so uh, I think it only happened, like I said in the beginning, it's sort of, this is the kind of field where I think everyone, including policymakers, are really thirsty for that expertise yeah. and, and recognize that um, it may not come from their their traditional sources. Um, okay. So then you went to Mozilla. And Mozilla has been fighting for rights for humans and privacy rights for a long, long time. What was What did you do at Mozilla? Yeah, so at Mozilla, I was their global policy advisor. I did a, a bunch of different things. Maybe the most exciting from those uh, those the several years I worked there was our two things. One was just the privacy campaigns that we ran for pushing for data privacy law in India and Kenya. Uh, in Kenya, it was successful. Kenya now has a data privacy law. Um, well, India also has a data privacy law now, but that's a longer story and it didn't really end up... Um, where, you know, it's it's a good lesson in knowing that it's not enough to say you need a privacy law. You need to say what kind of privacy law and what kind of government. And there, there are many related questions. But um, so, yeah, I think that was super interesting kind of navigating how and whether to kind of port the GDPR and this 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 legal framework that has been developed in a particular context, how to make it make sense for other other countries. And um, in some ways, it was like the both the, the drafts borrow quite heavily from Europe's um, privacy law. You know, it says as if you want to do business with Europe, then you need to have a privacy standard that meets our standard. 
And there's a bunch of Indian companies and a bunch of Kenyan companies that want to do, uh, you know, business with Europe. So, yeah, it was uh, it was actually really interesting to find unlikely allies like the business community that were as interested in having a privacy law in these countries because they wanted to have the impression of having an economy that was sort of ready for um, prime time, uh, yeah. ready for trade and yeah. data flows and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, that, w- that was one really interesting thing. Um, I would say the other was just we did a bunch of workshops with startups in a bunch of countries, including in in, in India, uh, they were called uh, the Lean Data Practices um, workshops. And that was sort of Mozilla's engineers. And I kind of coordinated this and sort of um, designed designed it, but essentially making sure that the startup community could speak to engineers from Mozilla and be like, okay, it's all, you know, it's, it's very nice to say, like, collect minimal data, but how do you actually do that? And how do you do that when you're like a very small company? And why should you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, another, I would say, a highlight of my time there was getting out of the usual boring, like, lawyer yeah. policy world and into... Um, spaces where you have to deal with like the, the the more practical challenges absolutely and isn't that what i mean that's where the rubber meets the road that's what we that's where you have real impact let's say as a lawyer as a policy advisor or as a policy creator because essentially that's what you yeah. are if you could be working if you're working directly with the people creating the technology then well what could be more impactful than getting into their brains and helping them to shape the te- a technology that actually works in the way it should work for people or a better technology let's put it that way Exactly. And, you know, one of the the problems is if you don't actually, if you don't factor in how technology developers are going to apply your regulation before you make the regulation, then often that's where, where it feels, right? Exactly. Because they'll come to you and say, wait, you said only collect as much data as necessary, but we don't know what necessary means. And so no one's enforcing the law properly. Wow. Uh, and this is to say that technology developers need to write the law as often happens. That should not happen either because they're self-interested parties. But I think understanding how they are processing what you're putting down on paper as a, a kind of legal or normative standard is, I think, core and often where a, a lot of legislation also fails. Wow, absolutely. So then you ended yeah. up at AI Now Institute, which is where you are now. <laughs> Tell us about the AI Now Institute and what is its purpose? Yeah, so the AI Now Institute started in 2016. I joined in 2019. Um, it is a policy research institute and it was one of the first. I never. I always say one of the first because I never want to be wrong, And but I think we might have been the first. Um Institute that was kind of focused uh, on the social and political and policy impacts of AI. Um, and, uh, you know, so I came to AI now because I was like, this is the I've I, I've literally been on what I call the the tech policy hype cycles. I was, you know, doing digital copyright when in, you know, at the Google Policy Fellowship, I did a bunch of stuff on net neutrality. There was privacy. And then and then suddenly it was not, it wasn't yet the AI wave, but you could tell that the data privacy conversation was almost always, you know, coming up against the fact that everything was moving to algorithms and inferences. And, you know, there were real questions on had, had data privacy law kind of met its met its match with AI and these kinds of really interesting questions. And um, someone from AI Now got in touch with me and asked me if I was interested in this role doing not just policy work, but more kind of building out a global policy portfolio for AI now at the time. So it was, I, I think, a dream job and one that like came to me at the time, at a time when 
you know, I, I could tell that like just the same saying that we need a data privacy law is important and we do and we need privacy law. We still need privacy law in, in the U.S. We still don't have one. That is an important battle. Um, but it was clear that kind of understanding what this, you know, so-called new technology, but essentially this these new kind of data-driven applications, how they were going to challenge uh, our existing legal paradigm and kind of being being ready for that. And and AI now has been the the perfect uh, place to do that in in so many ways. So there's a lot happening in AI. Okay, we we had in November of 2022, uh, OpenAI dropped chat gpt on us and then we had this this explosion of of chaos um and the llmification of of SaaS of all software llms everywhere weird things are happening i mean it's it's the world's turned upside down and for good and for bad so you wrote an article you sarah myers west who's managing director of ai now and meredith whitaker who's president of signal wrote this article in the MIT Tech Review. It's called, Make No Mistake, AI is Owned by Big Tech. If we're not careful, Microsoft, Amazon, and the other large companies will leverage their position to set the policy agenda for AI, as they have in many other sectors. Okay, so for the person who's not really been keeping up with what's going on, why, why should they care? Why does it matter whether or not AI owns big tech? I'm sorry, big tech owns AI. Yeah, that's it's an interesting uh, version of the argument, though. Mm-hmm. Um, does AI own big tech? Maybe, maybe, maybe. In, in some way. That, well, I think, uh, well, firstly, you mentioned my co-authors, um, yeah. uh, Sarah and, and Meredith. Um, you know, those are two of my kind of closest colleagues and collaborators. We do a lot of our thinking together. And you asked me about, you know, what does um, AI now do? And one of the ways, uh, without sounding too wonky, we we sometimes say like, we, we we do material analysis. And what does that like mean? Is like, I think what we're trying to say there is that there's so much, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's so much lofty statements about the future and the kind of aspirations of this new technology. And um, it's, it's almost a lot of it sounds like branding and NPR. But what we have very little of in the public domain, especially outside of kind of VC research firms, is kind of a material understanding of the money flows, the infrastructure, the labor processes, the planetary and climate impact. uh, impact, um, that are really kind of powering these these waves of technology. They're shaping the directions it will take. Um, and really uncup there's, you know, there's really what we call structural opacity. So it's not transparent, yeah. but it's also designed to be not transparent. We're not supposed to be understanding the technology business. Because if we did understand it as the public and if lawmakers understand understood it too well, I do think they would be on top of a lot of um, you know, developments that are now, you know, we can safely say haven't have haven't been um in the public interest. And so I think some of the work or a lot of our kind of, you know, what do I do in a day is spent really kind of doing that uh that careful work of identifying these incentives and um and you know, what are those the, what is the trajectory that this technology is going to take and why? And um, the things that, you know, the dominant players or investors and VC firms will never make explicit because there's a lot of value riding on the fact that you want to keep keep that information uh, close hold. And, and, you know, there's a lot of money to be made on on keeping it close hold. So I think the work that we do in some ways, I'm, I feel 
very lucky to be able to do some of this analysis and bring it to the public domain simply because we are incentivized as civil society actors to do that work in the public interest rather than to do that research for private gain. Um, even though often the the analysis and the research that like say we are doing and some researcher in a VC or some kind of, you know, analyst is doing may not be very different. It's just that they're kind of keeping that close hold and we're, we're, we're looking at it and saying, okay, so what does this mean for, uh, what does this mean for the public and what does this mean for public interest and what should policymakers do? But anyway, that was, that was a long, no, uh, actually that's, that's, I, that's, hey. that's, that's, I want to say I, my past career, I was in human potential world and I, I really coach people at an extremely high level. And then at some point I realized, look, the future is going to be determined by technology. And, and I, I got involved in understanding and researching technology. And then I realized that this was a world that most people didn't understand. And it was very exclusive, um, very clubby. And people didn't have access to the information uh, about the things, the force that was going to determine the future of, of the planet of our civilization, of, of everything. Yeah. I am very much, I very much think technology is an incredibly powerful tool in all of its forms for humanity. I think progress is progress. And we've always progressed on technology and there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. unless we have a large numbers of, much larger numbers of people involved in the process of designing what this is, then it's going to be determined by a very small group of people and it's going to just serve their interests. And we already know that power corrupts absolute power power corrupts absolutely that is actually a fact a really really good human being could enter in a position of power and find themselves very soon very suddenly a very bad human being because of that power they don't know how to wield it in the interests of of the broader common good they are very good they will then wield it based on the limitations of their own self as a small as a one individual human so if we allow technology that will shape the world the future of our of humanity to be determined by a few people we are just handing over everything we're just handing it over to a small group of and why would we do that and that's absurd and i so i set out to say no i need to translate what's going on for a much wider audience for a broad human audience and exhort them to step off the sidelines and get involved in this conversation about what are we shaping here what are we creating and let's do something that actually works for 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 everybody and yeah. so so absolutely and that's what this this podcast is about this is disseminating information to a wider wider numbers of people that's not like oh let's protect in the sense of let's just build whatever because we're just like oh my god we have to build or let's oh my god no tech's bad no no it's not that's not what it is tech can be good if we do if we build good tech and if we to build to build good tech we need Many more people involved in that process. Okay, so AI now. Back to AI now. <laughs> what you're doing. Because I'm so excited that somebody, that there are people doing what you're doing there, which is so vital. So how did you come about writing this article where, where you say that? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so this article that we wrote in, in MIT Tech Review, it's actually a, a culmination of a, a lot of, of, of research and writing that we've been doing now for, for some years. And it's an argument. It's not the first place we've made that argument but we thought that the open ai microsoft you know thanksgiving uh drama um that unfolded was like the perfect moment a media moment to try to draw attention back to it and say look we've been saying this for a while 
those that control the infrastructure to design and deploy AI control AI. Um, and when we say AI, because it's such a, I would say, underspecified term and used in, in so many different ways, we're in that article specifically talking about this current trajectory of AI where scale has become a proxy for progress, right? So progress today is building towards larger and larger models running on these corporate data servers in pursuit of like, you know, relatively narrow improvements against very, again, specific um, benchmarks. And so in this kind of paradigm where scale is progress, uh, we kind of keep drawing attention. Like I said, we like to get very material to like, okay, what is actually powering all of this? The infrastructure in the most basic and traditional sense of the word are essentially these cloud and compute resources um, that are required to both train and then run these large scale AI models. Um, and that, so that's a, a major part. But as we talk about in the article, the kind of dominance of, of big tech over um, the trajectory of the AI industry isn't, I think, compute is a huge part of that. Um, and, you know, just I just saw this morning, actually, that the FT, FT said that, um, you know, there was 27 or 28, there was uh, uh, 27 billion, let's say, I might have got the exact figure wrong, of funding that went to AI companies last year in 2023 and they said that two thirds of it came from Amazon, Google and Microsoft. And so you ask yourself, yeah. you know, what do Amazon, Google and Microsoft have in common? Oh, they're actually the dominant cloud, cloud companies, companies, right? And that's not, I guess, the whole point of our piece and of our work on infrastructure to this point has been just to say that that's not a coincidence. It is because the way we're envisioning this technological paradigm at this point has everything to do with who already controls the infrastructural resources you need to in, in order to scale this um, this technology. But but I, what I was saying is so cloud is a big piece of it. Yeah. There's also, you know, labor and the skills and expertise of who can use this infrastructure most efficiently. Um, you know, we know that that compute is a is a is a is a scarce resource, and so a lot of the emphasis, whether you're OpenAI or you're just some, you know, you're you're Mistral, uh, they're all kind of really focused right now on trying to make the the most efficient compute be as compute efficient as they can be. So you know, make the most bang for their buck, um, and that takes a, a very particular kind of engineering prowess. And that too, those brightest talents, where are they going? They're going to where not just they, they get the highest salaries, but where the hub and the most exciting and the largest scale AI research is happening. Where is that happening? That's happening in either in big, big tech firms or firms that are bankrolled by big tech firms like um, OpenAI. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that line got got removed from from the article we wrote. But one of the things, the, the, the image that really sticks with me is that the OpenAI Microsoft kind of, you know, uh, whole, whole Sam Altman debacle that happened over Thanksgiving, what it in many ways showed was that all roads in the end do lead to Microsoft for OpenAI. And I think similarly, for a lot of, um, you know, so-called startups that are trying to enter into this generative AI large large language model um, ecosystem, they find that all roads must eventually lead to those that are that that can give them the infrastructure for cheap or for free um, and kind of provide them that stability of access. Um, and then the other big piece of this, so there's there's labor, there's compute, there's also data. Again, well, yeah, who, has who has the, the access? Data. Yeah. High quality, yeah. you know, and, and that one's I think easier for people to, to, to wrap understand. their minds around. Wow. Yeah. Because there's what's been the internet I and mean, collect these big companies have been collecting everybody's data for 
decades. Okay, so in, I'm going to re- read something directly from the article. It's indeed yeah. many startups simply license and rebrand AI models created and sold by these tech giants or their partners' startups. This is because large tech firms have accrued significant advantages over the past decade. Thanks to platform dominance and the self-reinforcing properties of the surveillance business model, they own and control the ingredients necessary to develop and deploy large-scale AI. They also shape the incentive structures for the field of research and development in AI, defining the technology's present and future. So this is, the truth is, you, there's a lot of, there are a lot of debates going on. Um, they're, they're, they're the doomers and the safetyist and doomers on the one hand. There are the, um, the EACs, the, the, the effective accelerationists. There are the, so the EACs and then the, they are the uh, effective uh, altruists who fall into two categories or a category of doomer slash safetyist type people. And then there are the, yeah. And I think basically what you say, and you're basically saying in this article is none of that is what the story is. It's about the infrastructure. Let's look at what, what the real story is, is who controls the infrastructure, who controls the data, who really is controlling AI. That's really what's happening. Because everything else is an yeah. obfuscation of like, oh, we should debate this. Or, is AI going to do this? No, let's just look at who owns it, who controls it, and what are their, what's their agenda? Yeah, let's start there because I think that uh, you know, who gets to define what is an existential risk is also a question right now. It's like, actually, the thing that I think is an existential risk is the fact that we have concentrated power in a handful of companies. And that is a, you know, that's an existential risk for long term. It's an, it, it is a risk for, for democracy, for national security. Um, and so, you know, I think par- it, it's not to say that you know, everyone should stop all of the other work they're doing on AI and they should only bother about infrastructure and 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 kind of, you know, the big tech mm-hmm. uh, dominance. But it is to say that there's a particular way in which the safety, um, effective altruist and effective accelerationist, that whole kind of crew of, of uh, let me, you know, they're, they're all different different people yeah. um so i think that there's there's a way in which the the existential narratives although they're coming from different places with slightly different flavors as you point out to uh what it has done is that it has served as a distraction yes um and it's well let me say this it served as a distraction at best and at worst what it has done is that it has actually almost fueled the hype around particularly um, artificial in, uh, general intelligence and this idea that we are very close yeah. to having very powerful but very scary AI technologies. Yeah. And wait a minute, what does that mean? That means that tech companies' profits are going higher and higher because while you and I may not be, um, you know, may not have the understanding that AI is controlled by big tech, I think a lot of savvy investors do and they recognize that if the AI star is on, a, on the rise, that means the techs, the, the, you know, the, yeah. the star uh, on the rise for big tech companies. Yeah. And we've seen that, you know, even in an, in an environment of kind of economic downturn, uh, they, they've been, they, you know, these, these particular seven companies yeah. have done exceptionally well. So I think there's something about whose interests do these both the hype narrative and the existential risk narrative are often serving the same ends. And one way we have found to really cut through it and say, look, both sides of this are on the wrong story. Let's talk for a minute about who kind of controls this market, the infrastructural dependencies and the climate impact, which is what is this this kind of trajectory towards larger and larger scale AI that depends on this infrastructure that has these climate and planetary impacts do we want to have? Do we want to stop for a second and have a kind of public conversation about 
whether this is the direction we want to go because we haven't had it. We're just assuming this equals progress at this point. Do you think, do you, are people listening to what you're saying? Yeah, actually, I have to say that, the again, I, our work is focused in the U.S. and we speak most regularly to um, U.S. policymakers. I think that there is growing awareness of the problem of concentration. Uh, we are seeing, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying to think about what is public domain and what isn't. But I would say there is a tremendous amount of policy activity. I think at this point, um, there's there's uh, that is that is kind of focused on this dimension of the problem. And so what do I mean by that is, let's say, competition regulators across the world are now looking into the OpenAI Microsoft uh, relationship and they're really asking questions of what kinds of control does Microsoft actually get through its compute um, and through its investment in OpenAI, for example. And these might so this might sound like small fish, like, okay, yes, it's information. But I think that in, in this environment, it's actually, it's a, it's a it's a huge step that regulators are recognizing that they need to start early in terms of investigating what these relationships mean and the power and influence that it gives big tech. So, you know, now I think there are a lot of regulators or ex-regulators would tell you that they wish that the the WhatsApp Facebook merger had never uh, acquisition had never gone through. Um, and, you know, it's like, oops, regrets. We never intervened. We should have. Um, and I think that. You know, you can tell that regulators don't want and policymakers don't want to be on the wrong side of of history on this one. And so at the very least, I'm not I don't want to overstate how good the situation is. But at the very least, I think in the U.S. under the Biden administration, I think there's a commitment to that winning the AI race does not mean just fostering so-called national champions. It doesn't mean that Silicon Valley needs to be leading. We want a vibrant AI ecosystem, but we want, want one that is diversified and decentralized. Um, and actually, uh, the, the Biden administration has a, has a, um, a, a really good, good quote on this in the, in the presidential EO on, on competition. He says, um, the answer to foreign monopolies, obviously gesturing to China, is not to tolerate domestic ones. And oh, I yeah, think that's, that's such a, it's a powerful mm -hmm. moment for um, U.S. policymaking to have that come from the kind of highest authority. Yeah, and I, I think decentralization of, of tech power is, is fundamental to a future that actually is democratic, is free, is a one where humans can flourish. And so this is critical, critical work that, that you're, you're doing and you're spearheading. Um, Okay, so let's say nothing happened. Let's say we didn't get any change and this, this train left the station, right, full force, AI controlled by big tech. What, what, what would that look like 10 years from now? I want, yeah, I want to paint I mean, a picture for listeners. Look, I would almost draw attention to the present and say, look, right now, when you say the word big tech to, uh, you know, I, I, I'm at a family dinner and mm -hmm. I say, like, what do you think about big tech mm -hmm. companies? People would say, actually, you know, they, they kind of they've, they've messed up in so many ways, whether it's children's privacy or it's misinformation or it's how elections and, you know, elections and misinformation or it's the fact that we, you know, we're all being often be spending way too much time online and we don't really know why and we feel like we're losing human autonomy. Like there's a... There's a it's awareness. There's a there's awareness that like maybe this didn't go as we had planned right. and maybe this wasn't the idea. Yeah. And then really what all, all we need to say at this moment is now what are we doing is we are submitting to a narrative and I want to call it a narrative because I don't think it is necessarily reality. Yeah, I think it's a construct 
you know, it's a constructed idea of where we are and where we're headed. Mm -hmm. If we accept this idea that large-scale AI is the future in this particular form that it exists or it is being pushed right now, mm -hmm. um, then we are also accepting that these very few companies that control the ingredients to make these kinds of large-scale AI technologies will also control the future. And if we do not act in ways to discipline them, curtail them, and really, I think, shape this direction and make sure that it isn't just privately uh, being shaped by by these handfuls of handful of companies, then then I guess it's like it's up to that. I think it's up to all of us to try and imagine what could go wrong. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't Everything. like to get into the, uh, the, the business of speculation, but it's I would almost, you know, again, coming back to power because you, um, you know, you, you brought that up as well. It's a, it's 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 really about, you know, saying that already with open AI and with all of the, the debates that have been happening in the new year around copyright and all of these things, it's so clear that there are these, forget your existential killer robot stuff. There are like very fundamental exactly. questions. Human labor, what kinds of jobs will be valued? What kind of jobs will be devalued? What kinds of jobs won't exist? Um, what are the kinds of, you know, what? Is our information environment going to be changed in ways that we can't even understand right now, but are all, we're already beginning to see the signs? There is like a whole mountain. And honestly, it gives me anxiety just to start talking about it. There is a whole mountain of real social challenges that are at the heart of this question on of how AI is allowed to proliferate and where. And um at the core of that, I think, is, okay, so who is going to decide this trajectory and who is going to set the bounds of what we consider progress? And right now, what is, what what is you know, I would say most worrying is that those decisions are being taken ostensibly by, by policymakers, but really that tone is being set entirely by industry. And, you know, that's our, that's our crisis that we need to deal with right what, now. What can we, what can people do about that? What can what can a regular person do about something like that? They're listening to you. How can they? They're like, oh my god, I don't want that terrible thing to play out. What can they do? Yeah. I, so you know, situate yourself in in your particular environment because I like I'm always tempted by the answer of oh you know you should read up on all of this. There's so much interesting stuff to read and all these twenty books you can read to become really critical on AI, but that's really not meeting people where they are, and it's really not true to the the kind of limited bandwidth that we all have as human beings. Exactly. So I think what I would say is just think about where either narratives or stories about AI or actual kind of AI applications are showing up in your everyday life, and take an either explicit or like take a kind of critical perspective and where you can ask questions to people in power. So if you are being told that your uh, company is now going to use AI tools to do to aid and assist um, employees, or if you're an employee of Duolingo, as I found out today, and you're told that unceremoniously, like, actually, we don't need you. So you're now now your job is just to check what the AI did, then I would say talk to your fellow employees and maybe organize and ask your employers why they are making this change and, you know, kind of organize to ask questions and protest these decisions. Because I think the world that we are walking into is one where AI is kind of going to, you know, AI applications are going to creep into our everyday life. And sometimes they're going to be helpful and we're going to make good use of them. And other times they're going to really begin to start threatening uh, lives and livelihoods. So where that happens, and it won't happen for everyone, but I think 
some of us are privileged enough to have our jobs, ha- you know, happen in this kind of safety valve. But where that isn't happening, I think it's to be on the ball and be ready to organize because the 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 way I think that we combat concentrated power is by saying that their voice is in the public and that needs to matter to our political representatives and they need to be taking our concerns seriously. Yeah. Um, and so I think the more people that are, you know, vocal in whatever domain they're in to ask questions at the first and, and second to to protest and say that that, that isn't something that they want, um, the better. I completely concur. So I think the, the LLMs have already crept in. So I use a lot of different pro- apps and a lot of different software and everything has been um, LLMified already. Every single, every single one. Because what they did was all of these app leaders got really, really scared and like, oh my God, I have to AI now. And they went in full force in the last year and they're all AI. Um, I wanted to create a list of books to read in 2024. So I said, oh, let me see what Google Bard has to say. So I went to Google Bard. This was yesterday. I said, hey, can you give me a list of 24 books, tech books that are going to be published in 2024? So the criteria was, they must be new tech books that are going to be published in 2024. Give me a good list of books. It came up with a sexy ass list of books. I was like, yes. Not a one was accurate. It had cobbled, to, not, a, not one book. They were all fake books. I could pull, I could pull the list. I, I have oh it saved. Goodness. Not a one. They created 24 books, all with cobbled together um, uh, uh, a title. So they, they gave a book of um, Noah Yuval Harari. He, they created a book that he wrote and was cobbled together with somebody other, someone else's title. And then they put this and then they created a whole story about it. And they were by selling, they came up with, so all the authors were legit authors, but they made up books that they pulled from other places and, and it was totally, le- looked so legit. Do you know what it did, Amber? The AI read what I wanted. It understood very clearly what I wanted. What did I want? A list of very cool tech books to read in 2024. And it met my desire. It created, fabricated a list of books that was sexy. It was seductive. It It was exactly what I wanted. I'm like, oh, oh my God, what I want exists. And here it is. Not a one, not a, I thought maybe there's at least one. There was not one was correct. What it is trained, what the model was trained to do was respond to the need of the human that was in, interacting with it. And I could just imagine somebody coming with some distorted request, some request that was like wrong or twisted or like, tell me all the bad things that X, Y, and Z person did that they never did. And it would make up this incredible story that was utterly compelling and convincing and then put it out there. And I'm like, holy crap. And this is Google Bard. Google Bard is very particular. Google is very particular. They said, this is just an experiment. We don't know. They're trying to be super careful. Yeah. It was I mean, so bad. We now know that they didn't actually want to go to market, but then yeah. OpenAI did yeah. their thing and they were like, yeah. oh, gotta... no, so, so this, all so, this... We're just sort of incentivizing, I think, this... Like, it's it's really like a race to the bottom because what you're saying to me, just this whole anecdote is so, it's so familiar in some ways right? because the internet sometimes feels like that, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, are they just me this because they think I want to hear it, see more of yeah. Wait, now I don't know the next moment I'm seeing more of this. Like, like what is this? Whole... What is it? Yeah. It's a, it's a complete fabrication yeah. of reality. And, and that is completely, that's like, what? Like, what is going on here? So. I mean, I, there's a reason why I brought up the story. I was just, oh, it's so, it's so, it was so recent. It was so weird. 
I just like, I didn't, I, I'm like, um, we could be heading for a big mess. I mean, we have to be so careful now because what's online, we don't know what it is. We don't know if it's real or it's completely fabricated. And um, there was some other, somebody else did a, did a, did a, a little clip on, on Twitter and they did it from a 30 seconds of a person. You see a person, a video of a person from 30 seconds, you can create a whole model and a fake video of that person talking. And those things are, I mean, literally dangerous. I think, see the, I saw one um, yesterday, which was, uh, and uh, like I, I speak uh, Hindi, mm. which is one of the, the, the most spoken languages in India. And it was a like a, a white dude just being like, oh, look. that!" And he was just speaking fluent Hindi. Mm. And obviously, he's, he's, we're also moving the right way, you know, absolutely convincingly. Yeah. Wow. And I think it was just like in the in the context of like elections are coming, like there are moments like this where in some ways, look, on the one hand, like ChatGPT made people realize like, damn, this stuff actually works and maybe we are just one step away from, you know, AGI, whatever. Whatever. Whatever, right? Yeah. Like it, it was brilliant, brilliant marketing for OpenAI. On yeah. the other hand, ooh, this stuff is brilliant marketing or I don't want to even call it marketing, but it's a, the most persuasive way that as public interest advocates and people that are concerned about the risks of technology, we can, be, we can just show this video. Um, and I think yeah. policymakers are immediately like, Oh, oh okay, yeah, we get the problem. this is a this could go back yeah quickly um, so I think it it kind of works both ways it's like you 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 know let the genie out of the bottle yeah. but now I think everyone can see when the chinks uh should you know begin to show and they they have already that's that's true so maybe AI owns big tech in the end and and that sort of is really what helps bring down owns yeah. that. <laughs> big tech owns it. Maybe AI owns. Maybe AI is what takes down big tech because we have allowed these these monopolies to proliferate over the last years, and nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. Okay. About no, that's I. I love you said that because it actually has reopened a consensus. I mean, obviously there was the tech clash, but I think uh, on competition, I think yeah. that we we get so much, so many more kind of lawmakers and 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 people in power who are like now beginning to see that we're headed towards a world where all of our digital infrastructure might be controlled even more so than today. And so it is, it has that kind of alarm bell quality yeah. and we have the last 10 years to, yeah. to draw from. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the watchword is, you know, decentralization, decentralization. Let's find the ways to do that. What are you, what are you working on in 2024, Amber? What do we have to look forward to from you and, and AI now? Yeah, I think one of the, the, the projects that we are, I am super, super excited about. Um, I started by saying that there's so much about this market that is obscure. One of the things that is obscure is, okay, so we hear a lot about like AI and LLMs are going to take over. There's so much innovation, but we also know that these systems are incredibly expensive, right, to run. And so that means they must have to make money at some point. Like, sure, you're paying open AI some, some dollars and stuff, but really it doesn't seem like this is adding up. So one of the questions we are asking um, and we're, we're engaging kind of technical and investigative journalists to help answer this question is, what is the business model that will actually power AI? And the reason that this question, it's speculative question, is interesting to us from a policy perspective is we keep talking about AI innovation but where will this current trajectory land up or where do we think most of this is headed? Um, and do we really think this is the kind of public interest innovation we we were promised? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one part of it. That's what I'm, I'm interested in that because I think it's like a, you know, like a businessy question that not a lot of people have a clear sense of, mm -hmm. uh, even those within the industry. The other part of this is, is the, I think you will like this because you're, I think you're interested in the more hopeful futures, which is, 
we are very cynical about AI for good, but imagine if we forced ourselves to, to, to you know, imagine what AI for the public interest could actually be. No, what I... would that alternative manifesto look like? Yes. So that's a project that we have and it's not a year, we're not going to solve it in a year, but we actually want to work with um, a kind of diverse crew of actors um, and a global crew of actors to try and at least get some kind of you know, directional um, energy around that question. And some of it might be we we want AI, we, we want less AI, right? Some of it might be what do we actually mean by AI? By AI? We mean data-driven. If we mean data-driven technologies, what are the contexts in which we think that is actually helpful? Um, what are the contexts where we think that it is actually not helpful? Um, and maybe most importantly, it's really about just saying, um, you know, there's a, there's, a current version of this technological trajectory, which is absolutely dictated by industry because it is assumed that people who build the technology uh, are best placed to decide what to do with it. But actually, this is we already know that technology is about society. And so if it is about society, then we want to get educators and, uh, you know, we want to ask the question of what should AI be, how should AI be used in education should be answered by, you know, public school teachers, not by tech company CEOs. So I think just I think disrupting the consensus around not just what technology, but who gets to decide um, what technology is a is a longer term project that we're really invested in. And is the kind of thing that will give us energy because otherwise a lot of our time is spent firefighting. Yeah. And so it's good to be like, okay, so what is the world we want? If not this, I, then, then what? I am so excited about that. And I could see if there was a space that you could, AI Now Institute could create that voices could come to and 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 sort of put their have that put their input into it, you know. Let's say it was I don't know some portal where everybody could people could come and say what I think this should be and what I think and get more and more voices involved and engaged in the process. We would be participating in building a better world and utilizing technology to build a better world. Um, we get caught up in this false narrative of. Yes, AI, no AI, like stop the AI or build the AI. And I find that to be not the conversation at all we need to be having. It should simply be what, what AI do we want to build that would improve the world for humans? Can we, add, can we, yeah. can we ask those questions? Yeah, I would, and I would say, like, do you need to add to that? Like, which humans? So whose, whose interests are we building AI in? Because I think you know, even with this AI and public interest project, sometimes we're just like, if AI was built by our employers, then it would look one way because their interest is in surveilling you and getting more out of your time. And if the workers were, were to build data-driven applications for themselves, how would it look different? And I think these are important thought experiments because it reminds you that everything about AI is about power structures, including who is using it on whom. And I think when you disrupt that... <laughs> Uh, like you, you know, you change hands. You, you, you see very, very different kinds of uh, technology applications. So that's, I think, a good thought experiment to start with: is who's building the AI in whose interest? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. This is such a good conversation. So, so Amber, I ask all my guests to give listeners one thing to do, like one thing to do, think about, learn that would help them get ready for the future, because that's what this podcast is all about. So, from your vantage point, with your expertise and experience. What what do you think would be something, one thing that people can do that would improve their understanding and of all of this and prepare them to move forward? 
That's such a daunting, the one thing questions are always so daunting. So I'm going to kind of deflect by saying almost, or hopefully not deflect by saying, I think it's a, at first we want to, we want to all shift from being kind of passive consumers and subjects of technology to becoming kind of active, not just in, you know, we read something in the news where like, that sounds terrible. Like, let's talk to a friend about it. Let's create awareness. That's, That's when we see something coming down our, in our news feed, which or in our Twitter feed or our social media, which is AI generated and we think it's false, let's start a conversation about that. So I think that would be one one place to start because one of the most disempowering things about last year has been this sense, this false sense that all of this is inevitable. Yes. We are just fat consumers. This is just happening to us. And I think yes. um, it's just an attitudinal shift if we if we change that up to a more kind of active and critical um, gaze and that's so much of the work we do is like trying to give people critical resources so that when they ask those questions we're like read this instead because you didn't know you didn't even have that I right on AI you industry narratives so um, our work is to hopefully get to a place that we can provide people uh, information when they do uh, come seeking and, and not just information but um, hopefully a platform like you say or a voice yes brilliant I love it love it love it so much it's so good perfect okay you're a mom right how old are you? How I old am. are your kids? Uh, I have one kid, oh, one kid and my kid is eight months old. So I am, uh, I have a, a very little one and I'm just sort of getting used to the whole parenting gig. Okay. But as a parent, what, what are your thoughts about the future that you want your child to inhabit? Like, what would you like to see? You know, I'll be I'll be honest. I'm I'm such a pragmatic person in a in a I would say almost in, to a to a fault in that I rarely before I had children I had my child I would rarely kind of think of like the loftier questions of what is the the future. But I think now that I have this child, I, I find myself drawn to that question so much more. And I think um, it it's it you know it it keeps me up at night in a much more visceral way to think that we. Uh, you know, have a society or we are building towards a society where, where people are, are disempowered and, and most people are disempowered and power is so concentrated in such few hands. I think that that's the work that we grapple with in the AI sector, but it's also the, the work that we're grappling with as a democracy, right? Like elections aren't your quick fix for 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 that problem, clearly. Um, so we have to go deeper and I don't have any quick answers, but I think the world that I would want him to grow up in is one where people, you know, it's again, as I say this, I I feel like it sounds cheesy, but I really think that where power is more diffused, decentralized, and and we actually have contestation because it it feels like things are pretty bleak right now. (laughs) Beautifully said. Um, Oh, it's so good. I love, I'm just loving every bit of this conversation. So good. Such an energizing conversation. Thank you. It is like, Late in the evening, Eastern time, and um, I have a, a baby, so now okay. I have very early. Off you, you can go you... off in one second. What should people do to follow, keep up with your work? So I can, I'll put links to AI now in the in the description. I'll put your links to your socials. Anything else they should know about to follow the work, get involved with the institute? Like, what can they do with that? I would say that mainly just to sign up to our newsletter and um, our, our our Twitter would be great, and we 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 post a lot of our our. Um, you know, new stuff and new developments there. And like I said, for 2024, our focus is on 
reimagining AI for the public good. And so that's a conversation we want as many people as possible joining. Perfect. I, I can't wait to let everybody know about this. Amber Kak, you are amazing. You are wonderful. I can't wait to see all the things you're going to do. This has been like such a delightful conversation. And thank you so I'm much. Sure. You like you. Yeah, you have so much positive energy as a person. I feel like I'm feeding off of it. Thank you. And it was uh, a pleasure to, to be on this with you. Make sure to listen, follow and subscribe for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts and on our YouTube channel.